there, this is Jen Wade, part of the core team here at Springs Church. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us and listening to our podcast. We are praying that it encourages you and it inspires you. And if you'd like to find out more about Springs Church, please visit our website, springschurch.co.uk. Here's today's message. Um, we have been looking for the last, I can't remember how many weeks now, at the gospel. We started, I think, in September. Um, and we've been looking at how now is the time to share the gospel, to share our stories with people. And we're working our way through this series. We've also been doing the natural evangelism course in our life groups, those of you that are part of a life group. If you're not part of a life group and you'd like to be, come and chat to us at the end and we'll hook you up. Because we've been working through a natural evangelism course in our life groups. And that's been all about, again, helping us to share our faith naturally with those around us um, in our friendship groups and family and workplaces. And going through this series and that course in particular has made me reflect on how I share my own faith with my friends and my family, which I guess was the whole point. So, you know, job done, tick, I'm thinking about it. Um, and as I've thought about it, I've realised, I think I find it quite a scary thing to do. I don't know whether any of you can identify with that. You're going to give me a sea of blank faces, but I know you do too. There's no fooling me, I know you lot. When I think about sharing my faith with people, I find it quite a scary idea. Um, and I think I've tried to reflect on why, what's so scary, and there's lots of reasons. But one of the overwhelming ones is that I think I'm worried about the possible objections people are going to have. Not necessarily about my faith, but about the God I've got faith in. Particularly in our culture. Um, because, and I think that's come from the fact that in the past, more, more opposition to my faith has been manifested in this one question that people have than any other one. And this is the question. Why does God let bad stuff happen? Because when you're sharing your faith with somebody and you're sharing your faith in Jesus, this is often the response I've got in the past. Well, it's all right. Why, why would you believe in a God that, that you say is good but then allows this to go on or allows this to go on, allows this to happen and this to go on and this to happen? And I think, you know what? It's a really fair question. It's a question that's often rooted in people's own personal painful experiences in the past where they've endured pain or upset or ill health or hardship or worse still, they've watched someone they love endure pain and upset and ill health and hardship. And from that perspective, it's actually a very legitimate question to ask. If God loves us, if God is a loving God, why does he let the bad stuff happen to us? The problem is the question, I think, comes from a completely wrong perspective of who God is and what he does. My husband, Matt, refers to this very cleverly as the puppet master perspective of God. We assume that God holds all the strings in our life and in the world that make the world work, and he's sitting up in heaven, yanking on the ones he wants to and loosening the ones he doesn't, and he's controlling everything. He's the puppet master and I want to spend some time this afternoon unpicking this theory and answering this question, challenging this puppet master approach to God in the hope that those of you who also encounter this question from people that you're sharing your faith with will have an answer for them that helps. And also, let's be really honest, those of us that are sitting here who already have a faith but are still asking that question, Maybe secretly, because let's be honest, we've all asked that question. 
I'm believing that God will speak to us all today so that we too will find some peace and encouragement personally to know that God is good. (laughs) Even when stuff isn't good, he is always good. And I want to answer this question then by studying a character in the Bible called Stephen, who we learn about in the book of Acts. So allow me to introduce you to Stephen and give you some background on the guy, because you may not have ever read the book of Acts. Or if you have, you might have skimmed over the bit about Stephen. Or you may only know the end of his story, but not the start of it. So let me tell you about Stephen and the world that he lived in, in first century AD, a long, long time ago. It's about four to five years after the death of Jesus that we first hear about Stephen in the book of Acts. And things are going really well in Jerusalem for the the new church there, although they didn't call themselves the church yet. That's basically what they were, these group of people that had um, met Jesus or heard about Jesus through other people that had met Jesus and they were following him and believing in him. We call it the early church and they were based in Jerusalem and thousands of people were converting to this early church. We're finding faith in Jesus. Miracles are being performed and the city is just alive with anticipation and excitement. You can read all about it for yourselves in the first six, chap- six chapters of the book of Acts. Now, while this is all going on, the religious authorities that were in charge of Jerusalem, who were uh, Jewish Pharisees, Sadducees, and um, teachers of the law, if you like, they're not very happy with what's happening because people are uh, professing to leave um, I said they're not leaving Judaism, but they're, they're understanding a whole new way of interpreting the Jewish laws and realizing that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Jewish teachers don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they absolutely hate that this group of people, thousands and thousands of them, are believing in Jesus as the Son of God. They don't believe that's who he is, and they absolutely hate it. Their own traditions are being uh, challenged, their belief systems are being shook, their authority is being questioned, and they absolutely hate these, these young men and women that are preaching this news about Jesus. They're probably quite jealous. They're certainly threatened, definitely insecure, and I would argue a bit pig-headed. That's the culture that Stephen and his friends are seeing this amazing growth within But there's always this threat in the background of these rumblings of these religious leaders becoming more and more cheesed off with what's going on. So eventually, they start to persecute the believers of Jesus. They start dragging them into court, forbidding them to preach about Jesus, accusing them of blasphemy and heresy, blatantly lying about what they've done at times, anything that they could do to halt the progress of the gospel. And this is where we meet Stephen. Stephen was a deacon in the early church That title means he was basically in charge of organizing the early Christians, helping to distribute the money that they um, donated fairly to the people that needed it the most. Um, He was ordered to create empathy and generosity and taking care of people, basically, in that um, early institutional church. He was kind of a bit like the team that headed up the Hope House of Jerusalem's church. Think of that's what Stephen did. He was like, he was Maggie. Maggie, that's who you are from now on if you get called in there. Maggie and Emma were the Stevens of the early church. But in addition to all of this, just like our Maggie and Emma, <laughs> Stephen was also a really bold preacher. As well as a brilliant organizer, he could preach the word of God, and he did fearlessly and boldly. It also says that he was able to, uh, God used him to do astonishing signs and miracles. He was a powerful man of God amongst the people, and the religious leaders knew it. He was well known, and they hated him. So one day, they've had enough. They make lies up about Stephen that justify them dragging him into court, 
And then they accuse him of all kinds of things that he hadn't done, mainly blasphemy and heresy, trying to shut him up. But it didn't work. And in the book uh, of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen, while he's in the middle of this makeshift court, surrounded by these accusers, he gives the most incredible sermon. It's about five pages long. I've got a large print Bible. It might not be as long in yours, but I'm blind. Um, it's this amazing sermon that proves from like the start of time to now, everything God's been designing has been building up to this Messiah, Jesus. And he pulls his final punch when he accuses all these people around him of being the ones that didn't only not recognize Jesus, but they murdered him. Oh my gosh, they went mad. I mean, talk about screaming banshees. It says that the people who were accusing him were so angry, they could have a picture of a toddler being told, no, you can't have Cheerios for tea. Hands over their ears, eyes squeeze shut, and they scream so they can't hear anymore. That's exactly what it says they do. They literally have like a two-year-old tantrum. They're so angry with Stephen saying what he says. They lose their minds with rage. They drag him into the streets, and then they stone him to death. That's a big change for the church in Jerusalem. His murder, Stephen's murder, and he was murdered, we call it martyrdom now because he was killed for his faith. But in any court of law, he was murdered. Mass murdered. Prior to that, the church in Jerusalem had been going strong. It was a good time to be a Christian. Miracles, signs, wonders, growth, everyone sharing what they have and bringing it to the apostles and no one's going without and what an amazing new institution to be part of this movement that they're all in and all of a sudden Stephen's killed and everything changes and we can pick it up in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 this is what we can read this is on the screen now it says from that point on after Stephen is killed a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem began all the believers scattered into the countryside of Judea and among the Samaritans, except the apostles who remained in Jerusalem. And it goes on to say, actually, a few verses later, that Saul, who would later become known as the Apostle Paul, was there when Stephen died, approving it all. Stephen's death was a massive turning point for the church in Jerusalem. Like I say, it had all been going so well. The church had been growing. Stephen and many others had been used to preach the gospel and it was a good time to be alive. And then this, this horrendous, bloodthirsty persecution, imprisonment, torture, and murder. Why did God let that happen? Just take a step back for a second. Why on earth did God let that happen? They were good people. They were serving God. And they did not deserve to be treated that way. They weren't doing anything wrong. Why did God let that happen? Have you ever asked yourself that, that question? I'm sure you have. And I'm sure you've heard other people ask it. Why does God let bad stuff happen to good people? Well, first I want to clear up a really important point that underpins everything else that I say. God does not make bad stuff happen. <laughs> God did not make people murder and persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. God did not make that happen. He did not motivate 
or empower or pull the strings of the religious leaders to allow uh, such atrocities to be committed. Every single one of them, just like every single one of us, had been created and gifted with a mind of their own and free will of how to act. They chose to persecute the Christians. If you read uh, Jewish history, they would argue that they were motivated by their faith in God. And you can go through all, The bottom line is, God did not say, kill them all. That's what they chose to do based on their understanding and their free will. God did not make them do it. And because free will works both ways, God couldn't stop them doing it either. That's the beauty of the gift. And that's the curse of the gift. He's not a puppet master. He lets us choose how to behave. So, okay, you might be thinking, so you're saying God's powerless then? He couldn't have stopped it. What's the point of worshipping a God that, that can't stop bad stuff happening? Well, we read on in the story, and we can see actually that God is a genius. I don't know if you knew that. God, he created geniuses. Of course, he's a genius. The ingenuity of God at work is so evident, and it can give us such hope for our stories if we keep reading this part of the story. So in verse 4, we pick it up. Although the believers were scattered by persecution, they preached the wonderful news of the word of God wherever they went. The reality is this. If the persecution of the church in Jerusalem hadn't happened, then the believers there would have had no reason ever to leave that city. Why would you leave a place that was prosperous and everything was working well? And if they had never left Jerusalem, the good news of Jesus would have stayed there and potentially died with them. It would have been, Christianity would have been at best a first century religious sect that we learned about in the history books. But by the believers scattering throughout the surrounding regions around Jerusalem and beyond, the good news of Jesus scattered with them. And it spread, and it spread, and it spread. We, the rest of the book of Acts explains that whole story. It's an amazing book. You must read it. One of the people, like I said, who approved Stephen's stoning, Saul, he eventually encountered Jesus too and became Paul. And he helped to spread the news as well because he traveled and it spread and it spread. He was used by God to write letters that are now part of the forming the whole of the old new testament that tell us all about the good news of jesus so the good news can be passed down from generation to generation to generation in every language conceivable crossing over land borders and oceans so that one day a girl in a church in the center of gornal on the 6th of november could stand here and tell you about jesus stephen hadn't been murdered they never would have scattered and if they hadn't scattered you wouldn't be here and neither would i that's the fact of it. So what was God doing as the bad stuff happened? The Bible articulates it beautifully for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things together for the good of those that love him and have been called according to his purpose. If you love God today, you can be sure. I promise you this. No matter what happens in your life, no matter the implication of the free will of yourself or others on your life, God is and will work all things together 
for good, no matter how long it takes. Failure and defeat are simply not in the vocabulary of Jesus. They don't exist there. All things, especially the bad things, are worked together for the good of those that love the Lord. We heard a wonderful example of this last week, uh, a few weeks ago, sorry, when Gerald shared his story. And he mentioned a lady in that story that he met when he was at church in his early days who had a brain tumour. And that brain tumour led her to faith. And she was able to stand there and say, I'm so grateful I've got a brain tumour. Because without the brain tumour, I wouldn't know Jesus. God works all things together for good. Did he give her the brain tumour? No, he didn't. God doesn't give people cancer. But he can use it. He can use it. All things he works together for good. The problem is that it's easy for me to preach with this, but the problem is so often we get sucked into the lie that the Christian walk is an easy one. I don't know where we got that idea from. Some televangelist probably making cash off the back of it. It's not true. It's just not true. Jesus did not teach that the Christian walk would be easy. Quite the opposite. He said there are two paths. One of them is wide and one of them is narrow. And if you want to follow him, the road is narrow. (laughs) And very few people find it. Yet we spend so much time looking for the wider option. (laughs) The easy way out the easier way through life, but that's not where we'll meet Jesus because that's not where he is. As I've shared many, many times before, the places where we most intimately encounter him, the places where we most intimately encounter his love and his comfort and his peace are more often than not in the darker corners of that narrow path, in the valleys, not the mountaintops. The most famous verse in the Bible, in Psalm 23 articulates this beautifully. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So the challenge for us is this. Can we thank God in faith for the bad stuff that's happening right now in your life, knowing that he will work a story of his goodness and faithfulness through it that can and will change you and help others. <laughs> Nothing is wasted with God. No story, no, no encounter, no experience that we have is ever wasted in our story. It's always used to strengthen and change us and help others, always. Because God brings good out of everything. Not just in you, but in other people that hear about the story through you. As Pete often quotes in 2 Samuel 22, to the faithful you show yourself faithful. In other words, if you stick with Jesus, eventually he will show up. He will time and time and time again, and you will have a story to tell. So I've purposely kept this message short. I'm done. How good's that? 10 minutes, 15? What was I? Got to be a record. Because I want to finish it with having someone come on stage who has a story that absolutely proves what I've just preached. So I want to ask Deb Waterfield to come and join me. Where is she? Looking beautiful. Give Deb a round of applause. You want to have that one, Deb? And I'm going to have a little chat with Deb, and she's going to share her story with us because it's a really powerful one where she's personally seen the goodness of God playing out within her own tragedy and her own heartbreak. So I'm going to give a bit of context to start us off, and then Deb's going to pick up. So Deb, I've met her several... I know the story. I'm not making it up, by the way. I'm just asking her to dive in and make it more interesting. Um, Deb, like me, not brought up in a a church-going 
born-again Christian family. Um, and most of Deb's childhood and life was probably defined by a bit of cultural Christianity. Would you, that be true? Yeah? True, yeah? Tick a form and you say you're part of the C of E because that's what everyone did. Yeah. Maybe enter Sunday school a little bit when you're younger. But the faith itself was cultural, not personal. Um, and that's her life growing up. But other things happened as well to shape your life. So what were the most defining moments of your childhood, do you think, Deb? Um, well, uh, my, uh, I'd got a brother and he was four years older. And uh, uh, when Nigel was 10 and I was six, my dad committed suicide. So for me, um, it was one day I came home from school and uh, you know, everything's fine, normal family, happy family. And the next day, he disappeared because I was so young and mom, you know, people didn't tell me about what had happened. He mm -hmm. just, I knew he died, but I didn't know what had happened. So he just, to me, just disappeared. And um, so I was quite insecure as a child because um, I was always afraid that one day I was going to come out and mom was gone or, yeah. you know, my life was going to change again for some, you know, so... That uh, was quite insecure. So that was probably the biggest first thing that happened. How did that impact the way that you, uh, the kind of people that you chose to hang around with as you grew up? Um, I, well, it, I, I meant that I was very insecure in myself. My mum was brilliant, to be fair. And uh, she just threw herself into looking after me and my brother and my, my nan. But... Um, so everything that she did, I did with her. <laughs> like a little shadow. I was, yeah. And uh, I hadn't got really any confidence of my own, but I used to sort of follow her and be involved in things with her. And, uh, and then as I got older, I'd have, like, friends that were probably quite strong and then married Michael later, who's a very strong character and felt safe and secure with him. So I probably always put myself in a situation where, you know, I've got someone who I could follow. Okay. <laughs> so you grew up, married Mike. Yeah. Um, happily married. And then, as marriages often do, had a baby or got pregnant yes. with a baby. Um, so what happened in your pregnancy with Rachel? Um, everything was, uh, as far as I knew, I was very sick. But, uh, you know, like normal morning sickness. But I was very sick. It went on for a long time. But other than that, everything seemed fine, other than she came very early. <laughs> so all of a sudden... Uh, um, she was premature. She was premature. And um, as I was taken into hospital, um, there was another couple um, going through labour, you know, the early stages of labour, and we got chatting to them. And um, obviously I went on and, and sort of had Rachel, but she went into special care. She was only £4.5 and a half. And um, so uh, it, it, in Warsaw Manor Hospital, there was like a, a ward, a special care unit with like little cubicles, um, probably about 10 or 12 cubicles, which if they're very sick, they went into number one and Rachel was in about number eight. <laughs> so she wasn't very really sick. She got jaundice and she was tube fed and that, but she was just very tiny. Mm -hmm. Um, and on that morning, just as I was going to see Rachel, I, I saw the husband of the lady who was in, um, in labour at the same time. And I said, oh, what did you have? And he said, um, we've had some bad news, really. We had a little boy, and he's got spina bifida, and he's not expected to live. So for me, it was like, 
whereas like it was just a very aware of life and death I suppose it was like quite a scary time and just so grateful just so grateful Rachel was alive and and well really uh, we just had to wait till she'd matured enough to start eating and drinking and and mm -hmm. we brought her home after about 10 days but yeah so how did you then because you still not wouldn't call yourself a, a christian as you do today no, at that no, at that point so how did rachel's birth and the, how grateful you were that she was healthy yeah how did that then lead you to explore the idea of well, uh, there being even a god i was so very still very sort of um or afraid of everything because everything was big deal like so i was bringing her home and everything was a massive sort of sort of thought for me but um uh while i was in still in hospital my mom had come to see me and she she said when i had you i had to be churched before i could go into anyone's house and i said what does that mean and she said um it, it was like a, i don't know everybody used to do it then um all those years ago <laughs> um that before you could go into anyone's house you had to take the child and thank god for their life so with this gratefulness because that's all i could explain it was like i was just overwhelming grateful of her life and so um i thought oh i'll have to go and thank god for her life and a couple of friends of mine um, had been going to the local church um, just they'd had a little boy and I think they, they'd been going anyway and so I started to go along following someone else <laughs> but I'd, I'd sort of gone along with it to the church they were at and um, sort of that was where it started really going to church I can't say I really enjoyed it that much other than I couldn't not go it, I was sort of compelled really to just go so Rachel was christened. Yes. Um, what did the vicar say to you when you were <laughs> trying to get Rachel christened? Because well, he sounds like a quite a, ca a character. This he guy. Was, he was a lovely guy. Um, John Sharp, his name was, and uh, he. I was sort of not sure. You know, I hadn't really been challenged about my faith or anything then, other than I was going along. And I asked if I could have uh, Rachel uh, christened, and she said, um, he said can I come and see you at your home? And so he came and um, he said, um, I'll do a blessing for you and, you know, your family or however, any day of the week, you can have your, fam your family come. He said, but with Christians, we take it very serious because you make promises to bring your child up in the ways of knowing the Lord. And um, I'm not sure you really, you know, sort of you're really there yet. And after a chat, um, he, he agreed that, you know, I was going to commit to sort of trying to bring her up with, an, you know, to follow God, really. But I didn't know him myself, really, then. But, uh, you know, I think he'd sort of seen, I don't know, a hunger and a thirst there to, to know more anyway. So Rachel's christened, you keep going to the church, you start yes. to learn that you can make promises to God and keep them. Yeah. And then you get pregnant with Jonathan. Yes. Which is your second. Yes. So what happened with Jonathan's pregnancy well, and labour? That was like traumatic because he, well, Rachel was born, although she was premature, she was, they kept saying she's small for dates. So she was very tiny, even though she was early, she was small for the date that she was due. And um, she, uh, so I, 
uh, quite early on, I'd had high blood pressure and uh, I was on tablets by 16 weeks pregnant and just, I was losing weight. Jonathan was losing weight. It was just a, a nightmare of a, I, I thought he wasn't going to live, I think. And um, I was quite fearful, I think, you know, would be the word. And um, I used to go to church and um, uh, it was all very new to me. And um, the minister's wife, Maggie, she said, um, we was at Mums and Toddlers, and she'd said, how are you getting on? And, and I'd started to tell her all the things that I'd been up and down the hospital and things. And uh, she said to me, um, oh, she said, I'll get, I'll get the church praying for you. Well, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I thought, oh, if Maggie thinks it's, you know... It's worth praying, praying over, it must I'm, be bad it's news. It's terrible, you know, I'm going to, you know, it sort of must be really serious. And I was that frightened, I went home. <laughs> I was just, like, frightened, really. Oh, I was frightened of everything, I mean. But, uh, but no, I was taken into hospital early because of, uh, they kept measuring to see if he was growing and everything. And full term, Jonathan was £4.11, so he was very tiny and he was well. really skinny and covered in hair. <laughs> he was really, looked like a prem baby. Uh, but what was so lovely was the people who'd got to know at the uh, Anglican church, they would um, just send me magazines and, and just keep in touch with me while I was in before I'd had him. And it, it really meant a lot and, and the fact that they were praying was lovely and the once I was waiting before I'd had him to have um, a scan and um, oh, I didn't like leaving Rachel at home because she was only two and um, and all the visitors had gone terribly scared again just being in hospital and um, and the mi and John Sharp just stood with me just chatting while I'd got to wait for this scan and it was like this presence of like knowing I don't know it was sort of felt, now I feel like it was God saying he was sending somebody to be with me, yeah. you know, or just a prompt of a, or a prayer or a magazine or a, a Christian book or something. It was lovely, really. Just reminds right. you that you're not on your That's own. That's right, yeah. So Johnny's, Chris, Johnny's born, little, in, in Deb's words, Rachel was alabaster beautiful and Jonathan was ugly. <laughs> I don't know whether you've told them that growing up or what impact that's had on their self-esteem. So but yeah. there you go, poor old John. Anyway, <laughs> Jonathan's born, he's christened as well, and you said that you then did a confirmation course, which is what they do in yeah. uh, Anglican churches and yeah. loved it. Fell in love with Jesus. At one point, you said the vicar told you that, uh, that you, were, you, you felt like you were just talking about the Lord all the time, and he told you to don't, don't ever stop doing that. So with that in mind, this new Deb, with uh, this relationship with the Lord, how did your non-Christian husband respond to that? Well, he, even when, like, going back to the christening, it was like, if he didn't mind if I wanted a christened, he was quite happy that. But as long as it was for you... And the children. I didn't mind me bringing the children up in the church. We didn't want to, as long as it didn't affect me, carry on. <laughs> so did it cause any issues in the marriage moving um, forward? I think there was a point where, as um, I, especially as I got a bit older, uh, uh, you know, sort of started getting involved in the church. And things happened on a Sunday, which is a weekend when families go out and work work during the week. So it was awkward because I just couldn't not go. I was like, so uh, it, doing the confirmation course and going to church and learning about the Bible was like, it was new news. I was excited, and, you know, and I couldn't not go. 
So it did cause some tension, really, just because it was it disrupted family life, I suppose. How did yeah. he respond as you became stronger and more reliant on God and less reliant on the strong person that yeah. you'd married? Well, um, that was where, like, I thank God now for this because, as I said, how insecure I was and I'd always followed mum or been along with Michael or, or whatever, you know, just had someone else to be there with. I know that um, when I had Rachel... Nobody let, no, I didn't follow anybody because there was no one to follow. So I know God called me and, and he, I thank him for that because I think I might have been thinking now, am I just following, am I just following mom? Am I just following mom? But I know that I, don't, I didn't because there wasn't anybody. So yeah. I thank God for that. For me, it was important. Mm-hmm. And I got um, a little a confidence in God because I wasn't on my own. So I felt I could do things on my own. So, yeah, that it, it did change yeah, me. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've heard Mike's story. Mike shared his story a few months ago. We know his side of things. We don't need to hear that again, but you can listen to it. It's been recorded if you want to. But Mike's story took 12 years before Mike chose to respond to the gospel. And in that time, Mike already told us he was involved with the church and was happy to give money and serve. and do all, yeah, But... but but he's still for Deb and the kids, not for me. So Jonathan, I was in particular, and yourself and Rachel, obviously, but we're praying for, for their dad and for your husband, for him to have this encounter. And Johnny said had an encounter himself when he, with Jesus as he was a young boy yeah, and prayed yeah. for his dad. And um, what happened when John got baptised? Michael was baptised at the same time, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is amazing. He was 11, John was 11, and Michael was baptised, they were both baptised together. It was lovely, yeah. And Deb was sharing with me how on the day that Mike responded, as he described himself, and he responded to the Lord and went to the front, Jonathan sat next to his mom, <laughs> grabbed... <laughs> because they see this prayer answered, yeah. 12 years yeah, of praying. And they see their dad, the Lord come through for their dad and answer this prayer, amazing. So, as you can see, through what was a tragedy... One woman is changed who then sees her two children changed, one of whom then marries a guy and plants a church in Gornal that you're all sat in, <laughs> who also marries a guy who leads loads of people to the Lord. And they're, they're a family, really, saved by, by God to serve him. So do you think, this is the key question, do you think if the children, if Rachel and John had been born, born without issues, healthy weights, normal pregnancies, would you have felt the gratitude that you felt that led you to God? No, I don't think I'd have felt... I mean, you're obviously grateful, aren't you? I knew, but I didn't, both of mine were very tight. There was an issue each time. But I'm sure you're grateful. They're a miracle, aren't they? <laughs> but I can't explain. It was a gratefulness that was... I was thanking someone else for... That's what it was. And I didn't at the night time know it was God. But I, I, knew, I do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So looking back, how confident are you that God worked that situation together for good? Yeah, definitely, and he's never stopped. I mean, obviously there's so many testimonies in that with, you know, all of us have got testimonies, and and he's still doing things for us now, even, you know, we still have tragedies and difficulties in life, and he's still there. Absolutely. (laughs) He never lets you down. So what would you want to say, Deb, to other people that are currently struggling with the idea that God is good, who may be going through bad stuff themselves? Well, I, I feel that God 
creates every, you know, he's created each one of us in our mother's womb. He, he planned us. So we're all God's children. I was God's child before I knew him. So we all grow up in the same world together. And he doesn't think, oh, just because you're all the Christians, I'll make life easy for you. And all you who haven't chosen me yet can carry on. And he, he brings us all up together and, and the rain and the sun shines us on us all. So I, I think he loves us all, <laughs> basically. Absolutely. Um, we, I want to get the band back up. And I want to say, can you all say a massive thank you to Deb for sharing her story? Brilliant. Thank you, Deb. And I just want to pray for us, really, before we worship again. Um, I want to pray that for us that we will have faith in the goodness of God. <laughs> um, it's easy to sing about it. It's another thing to walk out the place when, you know, the rubbish hits the fan again. And, and you, that, that, that faith is tested. But that no matter what hardship that we're facing, that we will know that, that God is good and that he works all things together for the good of those that love him. I want to pray that he'll open our eyes to see how he is working. And that, that journey can take a long time, but every one of us will be able to look back and see, if, God hadn't, if that hadn't happened, God wouldn't have done this. And I can see how God has ingeniously weaved a, a pattern of beauty out of what could have been just utter, utter mess, because that's who he is and that's what he does. For those of you that are here that perhaps don't have a faith in, in Jesus of your own yet, you might be on a bit of a journey, you might have heard a bit about him, or you may be dragged here by a friend and you're still not entirely convinced by the whole thing. I want to just say, that whatever tragedy or turn of events has got you here, God doesn't make the bad stuff happen that's happened to you, but he can use it to bring about change and good things. That change starts with, with what the Bible calls repentance, which is a really big word and a bit loaded, but all it means is recognising that he is who he is. And you can't keep living the way that you were knowing that he is who he is. Repentance, repentance means he's literally turning away. I don't, I don't want to live that way anymore. I, I want to follow you. I want to leave that wide path and, and have a crack on the narrow one and trust that you can help me along. It sounds a bit cheesy, but I do believe you're here for a reason today. Because <laughs> today's the day. It's time to reach out to the Father that loves you and that wants you to know him, who already knows you, but he wants you to know him, to find comfort in him. Not necessarily answers, but certainly peace. To find wholeness and restoration and healing in him and then to be used by him to help others that's the gospel of Jesus so I want to pray for you I'm going to pray a prayer and you can pray this for yourself in your heart quietly to yourself if you want to say you know what this is it this is the day enough is enough I, I want to know more. I want to know who you are I want to follow you Jesus and trust that you'll make sense of everything else that I'm going through and have been through as I walk with you so pray this if you want to in your heart Jesus thank you that you love me and you died for me. I'm sorry for the way that I've messed things up in the past, for the mistakes I've made, and the things I've done and said that don't please you. Please forgive me. Come into my life today and open my eyes to all that you are doing in me. 
Help me to see your goodness at work in my life. Help me to be able to say confidently that you do indeed work all things together for my good. Help me to be a follower of Jesus from this day forward, walking whatever road I come to, knowing that you are always with me. And because of that, I have nothing to fear. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask everyone to keep their eyes shut. We do something in our church. In fact, we do it in every church around the world. The Bible says that when you decide to follow Jesus, it, you, you say the prayer in your heart and then you, kind of, you confess it with your mouth. It's in the Bible. It says that there. And I'm not going to ask you to jump around and scream at me. But you can acknowledge that you prayed that prayer by just making eye contact with me now and I can make sure that you get a Bible and that you're supported um, and that you're helped on this next part of that journey. So if you've prayed that prayer for yourself for the first time today, just have a look at me now. That's great, thank you. And for the rest of us, the message is still just as true. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, the Lord is with you and can and will do amazing things and bring things for good. And so I just want to pray for the rest of us. That, Lord, I pray that you help open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see you at work. In the really, really dark times, God, help us to see your light shining in the darkness because you promised that it will. Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. And that in itself is enough, knowing that, Lord. And I pray that we, we would each leave this place knowing that as a reality. Holy Spirit, would you make your presence and your comfort and your peace tangible in our lives, whatever we're facing. And for those of us that are in a better place and can look back and say, I can see what you've done, Lord. God, would you give us the boldness to tell other people. Do not be ashamed of who you are. To be able to say with boldness and conviction that you are good. You don't let bad things happen. You are good. You work all things together for good. And I pray that you'd empower us to be people that live and share that message wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more of our messages, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel for past preachers. If you feel like you got something out of today's message, why not share it with your friends and spread the good news of Jesus? We are praying for you. We love you. So please, if you need anything at all, check out springschurch.co.uk. God bless.